Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast, a deep dive rewatch podcast, spending time with America's favorite radio station, WKRP in Cincinnati. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm his wife, Donna. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the trivia, the characters, and the details that have made WKRP one of America's favorite syndicated sitcoms for nearly 40 years. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. And welcome back to another WKRP cast. What do we have on tap today, Donna? We are going to be talking about Johnny Comes Back. The air date, the 26th of February, 1979. Written by Hugh Wilson and Blake Hunter. Story editors, Tom Chihok, Bill Dial, and Blake Hunter. It was directed by Asad Kalada. Johnny returns to WKRP only to discover... He has already been replaced by a DJ who is secretly taking payola in the form of cocaine. And you know, in my head, this whole week when we have been working on this episode, all I can hear is player. Janet comes back. Yeah. Well, I hear. Cocaine. <laughs> I did want to mention, this is Asad Kalata's ninth episode out of the 12 that he is going to direct in this first season. He is such a huge part of this first season. But aside from mentioning he's our third most credited director, we haven't really talked about who he is. Assad was born in Cairo, Egypt in May of 1940. He studied at the American University in Cairo. In 1961, he immigrated to the U.S., where he studied directing at Yale School of Drama. Believe it or not, he directed stage plays and taught drama through the 60s and 70s. This was a man that would become this incredibly influential TV director, and it was not until 1976 he got his first chance to direct an episode of TV. He directed an episode of Rhoda. From there on out, no stopping him. He has directed for a number of well-known sitcoms, but none more so than Who's the Boss? He directed 117 episodes of Who's the Boss? There is more to life than what's your lip. So take a chance and face the wind. An open road and a road that's hit. Brand new life, brand new life, brand new life around the bend. This is our director for today's episode, Asad Kalada. We're in the lobby. The hi-bye gag is going on. Jennifer's in the lobby. Bailey enters and says hi. Then Carlson comes out of his office and says hi. And they say hi. He puts a notebook up in the magazine rack. But it's this very clip. Bye. Bye. Very short. They're all, they all seem aggressive and kind of upset. Right, right. Boy, things sure are tense around here since Johnny left. Yeah. Everything's edgy. And then I saw something that I didn't think I would ever see, an upset Venus. This is ridiculous. I don't have to put up with this jive. I mean, I can always quit, and I will, too. I can't work my show every night, then turn around here and come to work the morning shift. Mr. Zen came in, and he was mad because Venus has been working his regular evening shift, and he's turning right around and coming in to fill in for Johnny starting at 6 a.m. Yeah, that's a rough schedule. Yeah, that's got to be eating him up, and it is obviously making him a little short. Hey, Andy, better find somebody else quick. You understand? And as Venus is starting to leave, we get a Mr. Murray Gressler entering. He's a record company representative. Murray is like an unlikable herb. They are from the same stock, but Murray is much more abrasive. Well, the minute he he walks in, this Murray Gressler, you can tell he's a sleazeball. Oh, yeah. It, 
I think the word I'm looking for is Murray is smarmy. He's just too sickening sweet, and you can tell it's fake. Yeah, I'll look into it for you, buddy. Okay. <laughs> but he's trying to be like, buddy, baby, love you, baby, you know, all that kind That's of thing. That's obnoxious, yeah. Murray is being played by a stand-up comic and actor who was really a big deal back in the 70s named Jeff Altman. Jeff was born in Syracuse, New York in 1951. He started as a stand-up comedian in 1974 at the Comedy Store. This guy was working at a time when his peers were Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno, and he was friends with and trading barbs with these guys. I mean, Jeff Alton was in with this group to the point where one of his best friends would be David Letterman. He's hanging out with the big guns there. Oh, he's got big names, yes. And Altman would appear on both of Letterman's late-night talk shows a total of 45 times. Our next guest, uh, folks, a, a very funny gentleman uh, who is a frequent visitor to this show, and uh, recently he has been turning up nude at Renaissance fairs all over the country. <laughs> the man actually used to work uh, shoeing horses until he took one too many hooves to the head. Many people including some in a position to know belief his brain did not receive enough oxygen in his first 18 years. Here's our good friend, Jeff Altman. Altman's career never took off like some of his more notable contemporaries. I first remember being aware of Jeff Altman and knowing him by name when he hosted a summer replacement variety show in the summer of 1980 called Pink <laughs> Lady and Jeff. And I had never heard of it. And I said, bring some of that up I, on YouTube. I don't I even know what you're talking I shared some with you about. on YouTube, and now oh you're really, gosh. really questioning, is there a possibility of annulling the marriage? I can't get that out yeah. of my uh, head. It was this show, if you remember this, I'm, I feel badly for you, but I, <laughs> I do remember watching this, and I think... I was 15 and Pink Lady was kind of hot, but that that's probably why I was there for the summer. <laughs> what this was, Jeff was the host and stand-up comic guy, and he was paired up with these two women from Japan who at the time were the hottest thing going in pop music in Japan. They were called Pink Lady was the name of their group. These two spoke almost no English. And what English they spoke on the show, they learned phonetically. So they said they could not change any of their lines. Once they learned them, they had to say those lines. Now you girls do speak English. Oh, yes. We spend many, many hours in Japan learning. We wanted to speak perfect English when we got here. Oh, and you speak English too? Yes. Do you? <laughs> yes, I thought so anyway. Okay, what I mean is it's, it's very difficult to learn to speak English properly. Keep trying. You'll get better. <laughs> I remember watching Jeff hosting this show, and I remember thinking, this is not good. Well, I was right. TV Guide voted... <laughs> Pink Lady and Jeff, the 35th worst TV show of all time. Ugh. So you don't need to go look for that. But that's Jeff Altman and Pink Lady and Jeff. Altman did appear in the movie American Hot Wax right before this appearance on WKRP, where he also played a sleazy record promoter. Yeah, typecasting, I think. Jeff does this well. My name is Lenny Richfield, Richfield Records. Why don't you give me a call? Or... I'll tell you what, save a little lunch for Tuesday. I love you. Great. <laughs> Okay. okay, talking about being obnoxious, <laughs> when Bailey, uh, he looks over and sees Bailey in the lobby and he says, uh, Morning, Martin. That's pretty obnoxious. Yeah, and he's making a joke which is fading. It's a joke that in 20 more years, I don't think people are going to get. There are probably a lot of people right now that don't get it. He was referencing Barnum and Bailey's Circus. Barnum and Bailey's greatest show on earth was a circus that started in 1919. It was created by Phineas Taylor Barnum, P.T. Barnum, and James Anthony Bailey. It was merged with the Ringling Brothers' World's Greatest Shows. So then you got the Ringling Brothers' Barnum and Bailey Circus, which is what I remember going to. And you had to get all those names in there. With weakening attendance, many animal rights protests, and high operating costs, the circus performed its final show on May 21st, 2017 at Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Uniondale, New York. And then it closed after 146 years. Not a bad run. Well, let's get back to Sleazy Murray. Yeah, who sent Jennifer a bottle of 
champagne, he claims. We do not accept gifts from record company representatives, especially domestic champagne. I would like to point out there is no such thing as domestic champagne. Anything not bottled in the champagne region of France is actually sparkling wine. Oh, I'm so glad you straightened yes, us out I'm, on that. I'm have your sparkling wine now. Murray asked Jennifer why the station doesn't play his records. Don't know, don't care. Murray's out hustling. He, he's a jobber for this company on slot records. He would be a guy that goes around and he's probably got all of the Ohio Valley. I'm sure he is hitting multiple cities and he knows program directors and he knows DJs and he is just trying to get anybody to spin his discs. That is Murray's whole gig. Why doesn't the station play my records? So he goes into this spiel about he could lose his job <laughs> and then, well, really, it's about his mom. She's been sick, bunions, bad dental work, and the please, bills are piling please, up. Please, and Jennifer please. is still... Not buying it. Too bad. She is not affected by any of the sob story. Murray says, what is with everyone around here? Yeah, Murray's picking up on it. It's tense. So Jennifer tells him about Johnny quitting. Johnny quit. Johnny Fever? Yes, he took a job with a station in L.A. Andy's been interviewing for a replacement. They haven't found one yet. And suddenly you see the lights go on behind Murray's eyes because he's got a sleazy idea, and you know it is. We know there's not going to be anything good that comes from this. But we know Murray's coming back. <laughs> WKRP in Cincinnati. Come out of our cold open, and we are now in Andy's office back in programming. And you remember, this is one of those that we were uh, producing back in August of 78, so we're not going to see a bullpen again in this episode. But we've got a guy sitting here who's got some serious hair going, and you may not recognize him with all of this hair. Uh, this guy is Sam Anderson, and he is playing Mason Noble. Right. He makes his entrance. He just opens the door. Hey, Andy. <laughs> Mason Noble. Like they're old buddies. This guy is so nervous. I don't mean Sam Anderson. I mean Mason Noble as an interviewee coming in there is so nervous. He makes me nervous. <laughs> and the way he's addressed, he's he's got a dark blue shirt with flowers on it, a little pop of pink here and there. And then the sweater tied <laughs> yes. around the neck. That's and a statement. Right it, well, and this is kind of the precursor to that something that was a a sad, sad time in the 80s. They called it the preppy look. And this is kind of a precursor to that preppy look with the sweater tied. And the, it's not good and definitely not for a rock station. That's something else I was thinking when I was looking at Mason. I thought I'd have this guy on my easy listening station or my beautiful music station. He's got that look. But he does not look like a rock DJ. Mason is played by Sam Anderson. He's from North Dakota. And in 2011, he was in Water for Elephants. Now, you probably know this guy if you saw Forrest Gump in 1994. <laughs> he had a quite memorable turn as Forrest Principal uh, and... Um, paid a visit to Yes, paid a visit mom. to Sally Field, Forrest's mom, <laughs> to get Forrest his position in school that year. Well, your mama sure does care about your schooling, son. Mm-mm-mm. You don't say much, do you? He has 171 credits in his filmography, but that number is by no means static. No, Sam just completed a film called Echoes of Violence that is slated for release in 2021. So Sam Anderson's still out there getting it done. He did a great job in this part, and he sits and begins talking nonstop. He talks about how well he gets along with everyone. Everyone! Uh, there's this guy once who killed seven people. Uh, I still got along with him. I thought he was great. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter who would, you are. I'll get along with you. I'll work with you very well. There's no preface to this story. We don't know how he knows this guy. <laughs> Where And I'm thinking, was this a program director of his? Because he's... <laughs> Kind of mixing it in there with liking Andy and liking, I work with program directors well, and I know this guy that killed seven people. Well, finally, Andy yeah. gets a chance to speak. He says that they're looking for someone with individuality <laughs> in a new morning man. That's what they're looking for. This is so cringeworthy. I like to think of myself as not just unique, but different. Uh, <laughs> well, for example, uh, 
Yeah, this is Mason Noble here with the sounds that abound and sometimes astound, and it's all planned, especially for you. Hey. <laughs> Seriously, Mason, stop. Stop. <laughs> he's trying so hard. Oh, and he finishes that by pointing the pen at Andy like he's interviewing him or something. Yeah, let Andy have a chance yeah, to talk into I, the I don't know. Pen. So, so he hands over the staple of all interviews and radio, your audition tape. It's an air check of the last place you were, some of the best spots you ever made, the funniest bits you ever did on your show are all on that tape, and guys carry those around by the the caseload. You've got it's them like in crates. It's like a portfolio or something yeah. for an yeah. artist. It, it, it'll be you know five to seven minutes of your best stuff, and you're trying to get that next program director's attention. He gives his audition tape to Andy and then says, hey, you want to go grab some lunch? This guy's so nervous. He's not thinking. Well, I appreciate the offer, but I am kind of busy. Besides, it's only 9.30 in the morning. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and and Mason's reaction. Smacks himself right. in the head. He laughs and like, oh, dumb me. Oh, uh, <laughs> duh. He doesn't say that, but he does the motions. And Mason, again, stop. He gets to the door <laughs> and he can't just walk out. He turns around and gives us one last blast. This is Mason Noble here, your mid-morning host, saying, that's all for now. <laughs> that almost wrong. Yeah, isn't it great? <laughs> but boy, does he get applause after he leaves the office. The oh, audience oh, loved him. It was great. And this is not the the last time we're going to see Mr. Anderson. We won't see him as Mason Noble, but he'll be around. Right after Mason leaves, Murray sticks his head in the door of Andy's office. Poor Andy. I'm curious about Murray's freedom throughout the halls of WKRP. Somebody needs to put a lid on that. He makes himself at home, doesn't he? He just bursts right in. Andy, baby, I gotta talk to you. Oh, Murray, no, no, not now, Murray. Look, I'm interviewing Murray. I know, I know. I found your guy. And Andy knows. Obviously, there is history here because Andy waves him off immediately. He's busy. Leave me alone. Murray, his his clothes are just as obnoxious as he is. Yes. He's shopping at the same place, Herb Shops, I think. But he doesn't pull it off as well no, as Herb. No, no. Herb, uh, Herb's got a lot more pizzazz with his. <laughs> He's got that multicolored shirt on with a collar out over a polyester jacket's collar. This is kind of a hybrid leisure suit is what it looks like. Yeah. It's not a full lapel on that thing like a real sport coat. It's it's very 70s. He talks Andy into letting him bring his guy in and he introduces him as Mr. Doug Winner. And he introduces him like a show pony. Say hello to your new ratings booster. Mr. Doug Winner, courtesy of me, Murray Gressler, Onslaught Records, no strings attached. That's the way we work. <laughs> Hi, Doug. Shake hands. Doug, what are you doing hanging with Murray, man? Doug is played by Philip Charles McKenzie. Philip was born in 1946 in Brooklyn, New York, and his father was an NYPD officer. He graduated from SUNY Cortland with a degree in elementary education. He went on to receive a Master's of Fine Arts in Acting from the NYU School of the Arts. And upon graduation from there, he never taught any school. He just worked as an actor. In 1975, he played the doctor in Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino. You find him doing a lot of single episodes on sitcoms and on dramas. He was on Bosom Buddies, Different Strokes. He had a whole list of those sitcoms and shows that you would recognize, and he was doing that one episode. Then he began directing, and he directed such hit shows as Roseanne, Frasier, According to Jim, and many others. And really, it was kind of one of those situations similar to Frank Bonner, where the acting kind of springboarded into what really is a much more uh, flourishing directing career. Currently, he is a much sought-after film acting teacher in the Los Angeles area. And always on an actor's resume, you've got that special skills section. Philip speaks fluent Italian, is an accomplished chef, and a licensed pilot. What more could you ask for in a man speaking with an Italian accent? I know. Cooking, and he flies a plane. (laughs) (sighs) All right, let's get back to the show there, shall we? He shakes hands (laughs) with Andy. Uh, Andy looks a little bit relieved because he appears to be a fairly normal guy. Which Murray has to point out. Any beautiful guy, no zits, nothing. What a morning. (laughs) Murray's, no Murray's class. Murray is no class. No nothing. <laughs> Andy says, oh, okay, have a seat. 
And he asks how long he's been in the business. And, of course, Murray answers Murray for him. Murray will not shut up. He's hanging over his shoulder. <laughs> well, he's been in about seven years now. He's uh, he's out of work right now. But, uh, hey, forget I said that. In fact, what am I saying, huh? <laughs> and, you know, Doug looks, like you say, looks pretty normal. And Doug is kind of putting up with Murray. And it's kind of like Doug and Andy are making this connection. And Murray's kind of the annoying little dog next to them that won't stop yapping. <laughs> Doug does speak up, though. Uh, I quit to get my master's, but I've decided to get back in action. And then Andy asks, as we said, you know, the thing that you've got every time you go in for an interview at a radio station, do you have a tape? Doug pulls out the greatest little detail. I thought it was awesome. He's got a shamrock reel-to-reel tape that he pulls out and hands Andy. Shamrock was an Ampex cheap, cheap, cheap brand. You could get these things for like a buck for a for a reel so when you're sending out your resume and you've got to put a tape in there with every one of them and you know you might send 50 or 60 of these out all over the country you don't go for the expensive tape you get the super cheap shamrock well because it's not going to be played over and over it's going to be played one time but you know what we've found now which some shamrock sitting on the shelf the oxide is flaking off of it because the adhesive they used was so bad it is all just giving up and you play these things and it will gum up the heads of a player now because it leaves all of the stuff on the player. A little bit of detail there that was definitely part of radio in the 70s. And I, people like you got that. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else cares. But I thought it was fun. Well, Andy finally has to ask Murray to wait in the hall because he will not be quiet and let Doug talk. And when you put Murray out in the hall, what's he going to do? He's going to deface the place. He starts putting up a poster. The poster of his company, Onslaught. Onslaught. Andy and Doug come out of Andy's office. So here's Murray sticking this Onslaught sign up on the wall in the hallway as they come out. And it made me think, do I really know Onslaught? I mean, I've heard the word, but I never really thought much about its meaning. And when you look it up, it's an ugly word. An Onslaught is a fierce or destructive attack or a large quantity of people or things it's difficult to cope with. The root word of onslaught also forms the word slaughter. So really classy company, Murray. Right. Then what would you expect? That's yeah. the kind of company Murray would work for, I In think. your face. Onslaught. Andy and Doug start to walk down the hall, and they're kind of chalking a little bit. And Murray's following behind. Now, don't you two forget who put this deal together. Murray, restaurant. Where are you going? And Andy does a U-turn and heads back, takes the poster down. Wait a minute. How'd this get up here? You can't have this. You don't even get these in Japan anymore. I don't see you. <laughs> Murray just looks shocked. Where did that come from? <laughs> so, so we have a replacement for Dr. Fever. And in the next scene, Doug is at the mic. He introduces a song by The Soundtastics. And now here's a song that is going right to the top. Nowhere band by The Soundtastics. And you might be thinking, how did I miss that great 70s band, <laughs> The Soundtastics? Well, you didn't. It was made up for the show. This right. is the onslaught artist that is being illegally promoted by Doug. Now, Okay, now I'm going to go to my happy place, okay. Alan, and let you geek out here for a while. <laughs> okay, nobody has ever cued a record properly on WKRP, and anybody that's ever cued a record in a radio station knows that. To cue a record properly, you're actually listening for the first sounds, the first noise that the record makes. You got to put on headphones, you set that tone arm down very gently on that first track, and you listen to when the first noise starts. When you hear that first noise, you stop the turntable and you back it up about a half turn. That way, when you hit the button, it'll start up and it'll be up to speed when it hits the first noise on the record. Nobody's ever put on a set of headphones to cue up a record at WKRP. So now I got that out of my system. I talked about the cueing on there, and I'll probably cut most of that out in the edit. Oh, are you done? Yeah. I was, <laughs> I was up flying around with Philip McKenzie. Okay, there you go. Listening yeah, you to were listening to Italian. him speaking Italian. Okay, great. Thanks, dear. We hear Doug refer to Cincinnati as the Queen City. And there are several cities in the world that call themselves the Queen City, but none for the reason that Cincinnati does. Cincinnati was the fastest growing city in the United States roughly in the years 1835 to 1850. It was also the largest city in the Midwest at the time. Now, at this time, 
Cincinnati was on the far western edge of the United States. Yeah, it wasn't really the Midwest yet. No. (laughs) Residents at the time called it the Queen of the West. If you can imagine Cincinnati being West, it was called that in an 1819 newspaper article and then in a Longfellow poem in 1854. And if you've got Longfellow writing about you, that makes you famous. So they stuck to Queen City and actually still a lot of businesses and places all over Cincinnati use it in their name. Les enters the studio and guess what? And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner. Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now, here's Donna Stare with her report about Les Nessman. Right side of chin. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nessman. Les is acting a bit confused. He's not too happy about this new guy. Right, he's very cold toward Doug, but he introduces himself. I'm Les Nessman, director of news, sports, weather, traffic, and farm reports. Although they've met. Doug reminds him they met a couple of days ago. Uh, Les, very standoffish. And Les quickly claims his territory, and he shoves Doug's things over. And... <laughs> I, I, it's kind of like that my brother and I used to draw the line in the back seat of the car. It's like, you stay that over there, line, that imaginary yes. line. Yeah, Les was moving all of Doug's stuff. I don't think he also likes Doug's organization there with his records. I put my things over here. <laughs> these are my carts, and these are my tear sheets. I don't know why he's... Allowing the touching of the carts initially. Never touch my tear sheets. You can touch my carts, but never my tear sheets. I, I don't know. I'm surprised yeah. that those were, you know, okay. Doug is a maneuverer. Doug is a manipulator. Doug says... Didn't you win the Buckeye Newshawk Award last year? Well, that does it for Les. <laughs> Les is like, hey, you just might work out here after suddenly, all. Suddenly, Dougie boy is in. They're best buds yeah, now. And, I, and now here comes Herb. No fashion alert. No, no. Actually, it's not bad. Mm-mm. We've Fra- seen the pants before. They really made up a pretty amazing fashion alert during holdup. They were the kind of the base, but we had a matching jacket with the same design. This time, he's really toned down the jacket, tie, shirt, that combination. Herb introduces himself, and Doug says that he's heard a lot about him. <laughs> and Herb assumes immediately. Yeah, well, don't believe all that junk. <laughs> Doug assures Herb that it was all good. Yeah. And Herb's like, who are you talking to? Herb wants names. And he says, well, a lot of people. So now Herb. Glad to have you aboard, Doug. Thanks, Herb. Doug is sucking up. And he's won those two over. Boy, and then Les getting really, really personal here. <laughs> you can touch my tear sheets if you want to. We're moving over to Andy's office. And wow. <laughs> Venus is going to do a stint on the space shuttle or yes, something. this episode's fashion alert goes to Venus. Ooh. His outfit is out of sight. Yes, my goodness. Do you start from the top and work your way down? Yeah, or start- a shiny powder blue one-piece jumpsuit, a white scarf around his neck, silver boots with the pants tucked in. And there's also a patch on his upper left arm that looks like he earned some army stripes. He is in some intergalactic military from somewhere because there is a lot of sparkle going on on that jumpsuit of his. And on his left breast pocket, he's got a white star. And then there's also a red star on his right sleeve. Oh, but the thing that makes makes this outfit are the giant silver boots. Yes. Man, you only they're, get a shot of them just quickly at the beginning. But wow, yeah, those those are setting off that entire outfit. <laughs> to boldly go where no man has gone before. Well, Andy is kind of getting on to Venus and Bailey. Bailey's there, too, because they've hardly even spoken to the new guy, Doug. And they say he's been there five days now, so somebody should have at least said hi around the coffee maker. And we were kind of talking about how long do we think Johnny's been gone. Well, Venus upset about having to cover the morning shift, so there are at least a few days with Venus, and now we got five days with Doug, so... Not even two weeks. We're probably coming up on two weeks since Johnny's been gone. So Andy says, have you guys even tried to to help him or 
make friends with him. Yeah, nobody's really talking to him. They're kind of avoiding him, I think. And Bailey uses a shy excuse, well, and it's hard for me to talk to strangers. But then she says the real reason, I think. Uh, he's not Johnny. I think that's the real reason, yeah. too. Andy says, come on, you guys, give Doug a break. Look, Johnny is gone, and there's not a darn thing that we can do about that. <laughs> Venus has a complaint. It's hard to put his finger on it, but... He's so, so white. <laughs> now, here's an indicator that maybe there's a problem with the new guy. Herb and Les come just jauntily walking into Andy's office talking about how much they love the new guy. Gosh darn it, I like that new guy. Me too. Made a great choice. Andy's questioning his choice now. You two guys like him? <laughs> and Bailey sees it. See, Andy, there's got to be something wrong with us. Yeah. Well, Andy tells him, you've got to make Doug a part of the team. And then they're interrupted when Jennifer comes in. I'm sorry to interrupt, but... I'd like to show you something. Herb is on his feet. He jumps off of that couch so fast. There were a million different ways they could have done that. But by doing it this way, you get this great Herb bit. Do it. know what what he was expecting but i don't he... know either but so all of a sudden there was nobody else in the room but he and jennifer <laughs> he's like do it <laughs> it's a little scary where herb's mind goes sometimes <laughs> so jennifer opens the door and she says and here comes mr fever mind if i come in and it's a great homecoming. Everybody is ecstatic. Yeah, and hugs all him. around. He's only been gone for like 12 minutes in showtime. <laughs> so we were okay, but we, we weren't that hurt. That hurt. But uh, for them, it's been a couple of weeks since they've seen Johnny. He says he's looking for a job. And oh, Andy feels awful. Look, Johnny, I just filled your uh, time slot. Johnny decides he's going to take the graveyard. Gentleman named Moss Steiner. Uh, was their midnight to six guy. It's kind of a long and lonely shift. I did that one for three years. Moss does not seem to be taking to it very well. They say he tried to kill himself again. again. This time he got into a closet with a hibachi and tried to asphyxiate himself. <laughs> he had to know what a hibachi was. I kind of had an idea of a hibachi. I think, I think we had one at one time. I think about it as Back a little we cooking. Were, we were first married. Yeah, like a tabletop cooking thing. But we looked it up and actually uh, it's a, more of a heating device than it is a cooking device. It's a traditional Japanese heating device. We use it in the U.S. more to talk about a small cooking stove that is heated by charcoal coal or sometimes an iron hot plate. I don't know which of these things Moss walked into the closet with, but none of them sound like a good idea to be in a closet with. <laughs> right. Well, Johnny agrees to sit in for Moss, and then they're all curious as to what happened out in L.A. Did you say booger on the air again? <laughs> Johnny said, booger's cool now. You can say that. But then he says, you can't say, and we get very definitive mouth movement, but zero sound. What uh, Johnny said was jive ass. That was edited out for the network and then for all of the syndication packages, but uh, it has been widely reported. Now, Howard Hessman has claimed he said other things, and he may have in other takes, but in this one, he very definitely said jive ass. It was very easy to see, even with his mustache. And I think we can say jive ass, and we don't have to check the explicit box when we upload the podcast. Well, we'll hear about it if we... If we messed up. Messed up, you know. right. <laughs> Do it. Now we go to the studio, and Johnny is on the air doing the midnight to 6 a.m. shift. And he is into the home stretch. And I got to tell you, that last hour of that midnight to 6 Might is as well a be another long five, huh? time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it particularly cracked me up when he did the time. It's five. 27 in the morning. And then did the time a minute later. WKRP in Cincinnati, <laughs> where it's 5... 28. That was yes. hilarious. But he's listening to Ooh Baby Baby by Linda Ronstadt, and he is fighting so hard to stay awake. Now, Linda Ronstadt did have a number seven hit with Ooh Baby Baby, but it's not her song. She remade it. This song was originally made famous by The Miracles in 1965. It was a Motown classic written by Smokey Robinson and Pete Moore. It was such an influential song of the era, it actually made Rolling Stone magazine's list of the greatest songs of all time. I did. 
radio on-air name? My name is Heavy Early. Heavy, Heavy Early. Early. And it is. <laughs> we also hear, for the first time ever, the produced Red Wigglers jingle. Now, we had gotten a little sample of this during Mama's Review when Art and Andy did a duet. Red Wigglers, the Cadillac of worms. Of which Mama was not impressed. No, she was not happy. <laughs> it's a new advertiser. Be happy. But I love the comment, available in fine worm shops everywhere. Because, yes. you know, it's like having a good cigar shop. <laughs> You gotta have a barber. You gotta have a worm guy. I've got a worm shop, so they've got my red wigglers. We're happy little worms. We I guess that's what they say. I don't know. Oh, and Johnny asked the question. Is there anybody out there? I have an answer to that. Yes, there are some people out there, and they're very drunk. (laughs) I used to talk to them at like 2.30 in the morning. They would call the station, and you'd try to figure out what song they were asking for. Well, Johnny puts the song Into the Mystic by Van Morrison on. Yeah, Van's pretty mellow, so pretty good for that time of day. He puts the song on, and then he kind of sits back and takes a sip (laughs) of his coffee and gets ready to settle in. It's very, very quiet in the station. And you are, as the overnight guy in most stations, you're the only person in the building. Yes, so if anyone speaks, it does make you jump. Then Doug enters and startles Johnny that he so much that he spits his coffee out. So Johnny asks who Doug is, and then Johnny introduces himself. Uh, I'm heavy early. I used to be Dr. Johnny Fever. So Doug said that when he heard the doctor was back, he figured he was just going to be thrown out. Johnny tells him that that's not the way they do things around here, and then Doug's apologizing for taking Fever's job. Oh, listen, I'm really sorry I got your job. Johnny says that he quit. So it was his own fault. And then Johnny heads out of the studio to go get them both some coffee. Now, you notice Doug holding an album here. Yes, by the band Gringo. And this is Gringo. Gringo went through a lot of iterations, and there were some bands for about a 10 or 12-year space there that had the name Gringo, and they were all kind of the same group. This was kind of the first time they really got it together and got an album out, and it was the self-titled album Gringo from 1978. Well, now that Doug's alone in the studio, we get to see a different side of Doug. He's been all, you know, this sweet, innocent boy. Smiley and happy and and light. Right. Well, he picks up the phone and calls Murray. I don't care what time it is, man. We made a deal. And I better see you up here sometime today. You can just forget about it. And you see his face change. Yeah. His eyes get kind of oh. cold. Yeah. He's just a grumpy. All the happy joys just drains right out of his face. Right. And as soon as he hangs up, Johnny comes back in. Excuse me. <laughs> so for a couple of minutes, Johnny's been wandering around in the station not knowing what exactly it was he was doing. And he comes back in and he asks Doug. Why did I just leave? Coffee. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, that happens to me more and more lately. I've done it myself, (laughs) yes. Johnny heads back out for coffee. Hopefully this time he finds it. We move to a little later in the morning. Johnny is off the air by this point and has taken up uh, residence on Andy's couch, grabbing a few Z's. Good morning, sweetheart. Do you still respect me? (laughs) You know I do. never been anyone else you know that but you've been married twice already accidents both of them (laughs) (laughs) so he says married twice yeah and remember our translation that we got from tornado johnny said translate that story and we got the translation he told his third wife under the desk drunk. Yeah, yeah. 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 He said, I told my third wife, so I think maybe we've skipped over marriage here. Andy has. Andy says, you need to get out here. We've got clients coming in and you can't sleep on my couch right now. Johnny says he's going to go to his apartment and Andy reminds him. You don't have an apartment anymore. 
Right. I'll, I'll go find one. Another poster watch there on the end of the file cabinet. That yellow file cabinet is a hot spot for posters. And a little more Jimmy. This is a poster of kind of close-up Jimi Hendrix and very noticeably playing the guitar left-handed. Back in the studio, we've got Doug, and we hear the very end of Blue Collar Man by Styx. I uh, love this song and the album from Pieces of Eight. Then he, Great album. he goes into this song we heard on his shift the other day, Nowhere Band by... The sound tastic. Everybody, everywhere. No, nobody, go nowhere. Get on the bus, travel with the nowhere band. Okay, and another geeky moment. Okay, so he stops the first turntable, the one closest to the board. He stops that from spinning, but he leaves the tone arm sitting on the record. I noticed that because that's not something you're supposed to do. It's not good on the tone arm or the record. <laughs> and I've heard that a million times from both engineers and program directors. There's a knock on the studio window, and good old Murray is there. And you know what's a sleazy thing to do? Knock on glass with your ring. That's a sleazy it's thing his big to do. Gold ring. Yeah. Doug meets him out in the hallway, and they head to the storeroom. And this is our first time in the storeroom. Yeah, I've never been to the storeroom. Down probably that swing set that they use for, you know, special needs sets. Where they did the turkey yeah, shop. Yeah, where we had less out there mm-hmm. uh, at the Pinedale Shopping Mall. Yeah, down, that's probably where our storeroom is. Murray hands him some record albums, and he says, There's a little something special in this record jacket to uh, get my drift. Compliments of Onslaught. And Murray tells Doug the guys out on the coast say they love him. That would probably be the guys at the home offices of Onslaught out in L.A. where, you know, the music industry is happening. So Murray is regularly on the phone with those guys, and he's telling Doug, they love you, baby, they love you. He even says, even Sammy Davis Jr. could not have said it better. You are more than kind. I I hope you don't mind if I do this. Actually, I need it in terms of the next song. Doug says that he has to get back on the air. Murray tells him, okay, big nowhere band, goodbye, okay? And he kind of grabs Doug's elbow. Really? That's where you get that. Doug looks down at it. Yeah, you get that uh, term strong arm. That's kind of it right there. He's strong arming him a little bit and letting him know... Yeah, you owe me. Well, he's been playing that uh, that song. I don't no, think the, he's the playing it Nowhere enough. Band. It's the Nowhere Band by the Soundtastics, but right. I don't think he's playing it enough. They want it more I and more so. and more. They both leave, the door shuts, and you hear a noise. <laughs> and you see Johnny raise up from behind this big box. And we found where Johnny went when he got thrown out of Andy's office. He's sleeping in the storeroom. Murray made that comment about Sammy Davis Jr. He was born Samuel George Davis Jr. in 1925. He was an American singer, but did everything. Dancer, actor, vaudevillian, and a pretty good stand-up comic. He began in vaudeville at the age of three with his dad. His film career began in 1933, and in 1954, he lost his left eye to a car accident. Which didn't slow him down a bit. He got a glass eye, and actually it became part of his act. Uh, Sammy converted to Judaism in the late 1950s. It is true that I'm an American Negro who, who is, uh, I have adopted Judaism as a faith. Everybody knows that, and they, all the comics make jokes about it. Uh, and I do it in self-defense. But I would also like to let you know something that I'm probably you're not aware of. My mother is a Puerto Rican. My mother's maiden name was Elvira Sanchez. This is true, Emmis. And... <laughs> so that makes that means I'm colored, Jewish, and Puerto Rican. When I move into a neighborhood, I wipe it out. In 1959, he became a member of the Rat Pack with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Joey Bishop, and Peter Lawford. And this was a group that got their name from Angie Dickinson. She once told them. After a long night of drinking and poker playing, which they did regularly, they (laughs) looked like a pack of rats and the name stuck. In 1964, Davis was the first African-American to sing at the Copacabana nightclub in New York. Sammy broke down a lot of walls in 1966. He was the star of the Sammy Davis Jr. Show. And then he had a hit in 1972 with The Candyman. The Candyman can. The Candyman can. The Candyman can cause he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. He died in debt to the IRS at the age of 64, which that's not 
old no, at all. No, but I um, think Sammy had a rough life and a lot of booze and a lot of cigarettes. I started to say all the life he packed into those 64 oh, yeah. years. Woo. You, are, you are more than kind. We come back into the studio and you remember when we left, he had left that tone arm on the record that was closest to the board. And now the tone arm is up on the mount. Now he turns things back up and we hear the end of this Nowhere Band tune, which they're using pretty liberally because they own it. And then he puts on the Chicago tune Alive Again. Johnny comes in and tells him that he's been sleeping in the storeroom. Mm, Doug gets it immediately, and you see a dark expression pass over his face. Johnny says, oh, these new releases from Onslaught, and he picks up the stack of albums. Doug is a little agitated when Johnny goes over to that stack of records. What's this, uh, some new releases from Onslaught? Yeah, I think so. Hey, hey, don't touch them. Why not? Just put him down. A little bag of cocaine falls out of the one record that Murray pointed out. <laughs> Doug's like, I don't know what it is. It's not my mom. Oh, mom. no, he's never Whatever seen that. Whatever it is. I have no idea even what it is. Johnny tells him what it is. Doug, don't jive me, okay? It's not mine. Whatever it is. <sighs> it's cocaine. Peruvian marching powder. It comes from the coca plant, which is native to South America. The Incas used the leaves to make a tea, or they would chew on them. Because it made them alert and very energetic. Very energetic. They were up for <laughs> days at a time. Okay. In 1859, a gentleman named Albert Neiman isolated the active ingredient in the coca leaf. And he had uh, come up with cocaine. Cocaine is also known by names such as nose candy. Snow. Sea. White lady. Toot. Charlie. Blow. White dust. And stardust. Cocaine. It's going to run you today. Looking up the prices on this, if you're in the market for cocaine, it varies a lot depending on where you are. Some of the ranges, they'll say anywhere from $100 to $600 a gram. So about $2,200 to $2,500 an ounce is what it's going to run you, we think, right now based on what research we could do uh, short of actually going out and buying cocaine, which we're not doing that. We found that Sigmund Freud used it in treating morphine addiction and depression. We have an attitude about cocaine of, you know, dangerous and addictive and it can destroy your life. Back at the time that it was discovered, it was just thought of as a very pleasant stimulant. It was used as an anesthetic by an ophthalmologist when performing a glaucoma operation. And they continued to use it for an a as an anesthetic for quite a few years until they started actually overdosing people. And they decided this might be dangerous. But in the late 1800s, everybody was into the cocaine uh, to the point where you might remember Coca-Cola quite famously had cocaine used in their formula in the 1880s. You were getting about a 60 milligram bump per eight ounce bottle. Cocaine. At the 1912 Hague International Opium Convention, cocaine and heroin were both declared problematic substances. So they stopped using it as an anesthetic and they took it out of Coca-Cola. And it kind of became illegal everywhere. It was out of the public eye for a long time. But then in the 70s and 80s, it came back in vogue, uh, especially around Wall Street and the music industry. Cocaine. Johnny tells Doug that Murray is trouble and that the radio station could lose its license. This is payola. Yeah, Johnny uses that word, payola. And Doug still claims, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen that stuff before. All right, now there's bribery in every field, but they're so good at it in the music business, they coined the term. Payola was coined to describe the practice of getting songs on the radio in the 1950s. It was so common in rock and roll, just pretty much every DJ had their hand out. Mr. Carlson walks in and he asks, oh, so the two of you are getting acquainted, huh? He sees the bag of cocaine and he says, what's that? There's this little move. Johnny tosses it back to Doug just the yes. instant that Carlson opens the door. And Doug catches it. And he's kind of standing there with it. And hides it a little bit. And it's almost like he's caught flat-footed when Carlson comes through the door. He's right. obviously got this in his hand. <laughs> well, Johnny Johnny helps out. It's uh, 
Foot powder, Mr. Carlson. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Let me see it. Foot powder, huh? <laughs> well, there's not much here. Well, it's uh, really potent, you know. Little goes a long way. You can't get this stuff in the stores. And Art's got some foot problems. He's interested so in he's interested. whether this might help. He asks if he can see that, and he sits down and, and starts talking about his foot <laughs> odor problem. And he pulls off his shoe, and he's pointing in there, and he said he got some of those odor eaters. Now, when he mentioned odor eaters, we had to go check that out. Odor eaters are an American brand of foot care products, which the original product was kind of new at this time. What they are is a latex insole that is uh, covered with activated carbon. The activated carbon is supposed to neutralize odors. This was invented by a guy named Herb Lapidus. It was introduced under the Johnson's brand in 1974. Odor Eaters has a unique activated charcoal formula designed to destroy foot and shoe odor for up to three months. Guaranteed. And they did quite well just as Odor Eaters, and that's what Art was buying. Eventually, in 2011, Odor Eaters sold to Blistex. They are now under the Blistex brand, but they are still made and sold as Odor Eaters today. I've been buying these odor eaters they're supposed to last about three months these suckers turn on me about 15 days and when carlson asks johnny if he thinks this stuff will really work actually this is where the concept of happy feet originated oh yeah a lot of happy feet happy feet happy feet so art walks out with the little baggie of foot powder <laughs> Doug is upset, and he hollers, that was $600 worth of cocaine. And as we mentioned, that's probably going to be about $2,300 translated to $2,020. So he was about an ounce. When Doug asked Johnny what he thinks Carlson will do with it, <laughs> worried that maybe he's going to turn it in or something. Carlson's no fool, man. He's going to put it on his feet. And he smiles really big and walks out. Yeah, Art has no idea. He thinks it's foot powder. <laughs> and that was $600 worth of Coke. In Carlson's office now, we see Carlson has his shoes and socks off. He's sprinkling some of the foot powder into a sock. Uh, you remember we mentioned that cocaine was used as an anesthetic? They used it as a topical. They would put it on the area they wanted to numb. <laughs> So when he's putting this in his socks, watch out. Andy enters and tells Carlson that Doug's got to go. He says that he's found out that Doug's been playing some of the songs way too much. Well, Andy even mentioned it to him that he needed to stop playing certain songs that were coming from Murray's company. Nowhere band by the sound testers. And Doug refused because that's going to shut off the cocaine supply. So Andy checked around, which maybe he should have done that before he hired him. Uh, it seemed pretty easy to call around and find out that Doug is taking, taking but payola from Murray. Doug seemed so normal. Yeah, but Andy should have checked. I guess I so. I mean, consider the source. He was recommended by Murray. Doug enters the office because Andy is asked to see him. Huh. Want to see me, Andy? Yeah, Doug. Yeah, yeah I do. <laughs> I want you to answer a question for Mr. Carlson and me, would you please? Sure. <laughs> You take him, Payola. Doug assumes a lot. He kind of jumps ahead, saying he thought, sure, Johnny would tell, and that's what he's assuming happened. He doesn't realize Andy just figured it out from hearing what he was playing. Doug basically admits about the coke, and he's trying to accuse Johnny. Yeah, he turns it around. It's it's kind of one of those, you know, I didn't say it, now you're saying it. And all of a sudden, he's trying to push the blame off on Johnny, which Andy knows that's not true. Coke. That's right. And I think Johnny gets it from some uh, record distributor. I don't know which one. I don't know who, but <laughs> somebody. There's somebody that Johnny's getting it from. Surely, Andy. <laughs> liar, Doug. Liar. Right. Andy calls him a liar to his face. And then Carlson. What's this all about, anyway? He joins in. <laughs> Art has only heard what has been said since Doug walked in. Nobody has said the word cocaine. Doug has only said coke. coke. Oh, come on. I ease off, Travis. I have a little coke every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> I love art so much. And clueless art is always so funny. Well, and you can see the, the actor playing Doug. You can see him. <laughs> 
he puts his lips together really oh, it was tight hard. because he's it trying not to laugh. <laughs> and you know in the back of his mind, he's thinking, I'm here for a day. I'm going to do this and I'm going to be a professional. I'm not going to laugh. But, oh, it was tough. <laughs> I don't know if I'd have been able to do it. Andy uh, tells Doug, hey, Johnny never told me anything about cocaine. Yeah. Yeah, and Andy immediately jumps to Murray because Murray's a sleazeball. Look, is Murray behind this? Yes, and Doug admits that he has accepted a couple of small gifts from him, but Just everybody does things. it. Everybody it's foot does powder. it. That's all it is, and yeah, everybody does it. No, they don't. No one around here does. Art is pure as the driven snow. Well, I sure don't. I was offered one of those folding travel alarm clocks once. I turned that down. <laughs> <laughs> I probably got that for opening a checking account. No, I'm not taking any payola. (laughs) Andy tells Doug that he is gone, and Carlson supports him in this. Doug got a parting remark for him, of course. You guys are nothing but a bunch of small timers anyway. But boom, Andy slams the door so that he can't leave. Where's the Coke? I don't know. I guess Carlson puts it on his feet. And when he says this... When Art realizes what's going on. Both of them, Andy and Art, are like, what? Oh, my gosh. And Carlson panics. I've lost all the feeling in the land of hope. <laughs> you're going to be all right. For the love of Pete, Andy, I'm hooked. No, you're not hooked. I got a monkey on my foot. Beating on his foot with his shoes, screaming, I've got a monkey on my foot. Now, when he says this phrase, this is referring to the phrase, got a monkey on your back. Which we associate a lot of times with drug addiction. I got a monkey on my back. But you said you looked it up and it really even predates the drugs. Yes, it was referring to if you've got a a terrible burden that you can't get rid of, if you're grappling with a problem that will not go away. And it's not like just carrying a static burden around. It's a monkey. It's a hard thing to carry around. WKRP in Cincinnati. We'll be back after this. Back in the studio, we get the Red Wigglers jingle again. And Johnny's back. He's so happy. He skips. He literally skips. Skips in through the door to his chair. He's so excited. All right, Cincinnati, shape up, because it's time for your morning checkup. The doctor is on duty. I have just returned from personally supervising an extensive research project involving West Coast vegetable worship cults. And the cure is here, babies. That's right. Dr. Johnny Fever is back, and I am on call right here every morning on WKRP in Cincinnati. Steps into a little Clapton. We get some Layla. And we see the old Johnny. He's standing yeah. up. He's holding the microphone. Kind of like the when he first gave himself the name Dr. Johnny Fever and he and pilot part one. So Bailey is outside in the hallway. She steps to the studio window and Bailey's happy because she sees Johnny dancing around, playing air guitar. She knocks on the window, waves, gives him a thumbs up, and Bailey is wearing a very interesting sweatshirt. The shirt has a picture of a man on it, and we looked this up. His name is Thomas Shippers. He was a conductor for the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Which, that makes it sound very minimal what this man was. One of the many things he did was conductor of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. This man was amazingly talented and accomplished so much during his short but very interesting life. There was so much about him we couldn't mention at all. But unfortunately... He died very early. He was 47 years old and died quite suddenly in 1977. So this would have been about a year before the shooting of this episode. So that shirt is being worn in memoriam, I believe. He was named director of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra in 1970. So he only did it for seven years because he died. Made a huge impression on the city of Cincinnati and on the symphony. If you're ever needing some interesting reading material, look this guy up. And it's Shippers, S-C-H-I-P-P-E-R-S. Well, that's it for the episode. All right. What is up for next week? Next week, Never Leave Me, Lucille. Yay! Uh, We get more Edie. Love her. (laughs) Feeling that she's being taken for granted. Granted, Herb's wife, Lucille, kicks him out of the house and wants a divorce. This divorce affects 
everyone in the office. Herb needs a place to stay. He considers himself a free man, which causes Jennifer to feel even more exposed. Or leave town. (laughs) So they all work together to convince Lucille and Herb they should stay together. Uh, And they've got some iconic scenes. you got to join us for that one. Never leave me, Lucille. Next time, that's going to do it for this Uh episode uh uh of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. Thanks for joining us. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, wkrpcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye. May the good news be yours. WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shot Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!